Snap Studios. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Snap Judgment Studios. My mother and I, ever since I was a teenager, we haven't really been on the same page about religion, values, relationships, nothing really. We haven't been able to close this circle. And that's why a story that a friend of mine, she told a little while ago why it was such a gift to me. A long time ago, before Uber, before everybody had a cell, my friend, she was flying into Detroit and couldn't get a hold of me. I was at my mama's place for some reason, so she called my mother. She asked if I was going to come pick her up from the airport. And my mama said, I have no idea, baby. I don't know what that boy's up to. And my friend's like, oh, no. He said he was going to pick me up. And then my mom's just like, oh, honey, if he said he was going to do it, that's different. You ain't got nothing to worry about. It's already done. He's going to meet you wherever he said he's going to meet you. Believe that. Because that boy, that boy's a blessing. And when my friend told me this story, I had to stop her. Wait a minute. My mother said I was a blessing? Are you sure that's the word she used? Because that word means something very specific to my mama. I told you, she said you were a blessing. Then I had to be quiet for a while. And sit with that because I never had any notion she thought of our relationship as anything other than a challenge, an obstacle, maybe even a burden. But she views our situation very differently as a blessing to her. And since then, I've tried to use her word for our quarrels, for our misunderstandings, even for our silences, a blessing. I've tried to use it in all sorts of situations. And it turns out that I am wrapped in more blessings than I ever imagined. Today on Snap Judgment, one story from one person who counts his own blessings in a way I never would have imagined, we proudly present the cloak of good fortune. My name is from Washington, and I will not pick you up from the airport when you're listening. You're listening, you're listening, you're listening. Snap judgment.
we began in the capital of Cambodia, where a young boy is just starting to see the effects of a simmering conflict and know that this journey recounts aspects of the Khmer Rouge civil war that have been erased from history. The tortures, the deaths, the sacrifices. And while sensitive listeners should be advised about this very real backdrop, please understand that at its heart, today's story is about a kid trying to make his way. Snap judgment. We begin to see people gathering on the street and then carrying their belongings. So my mom stopped them and asked what's going on. And they told us that they escaped to the city for their safety. The rumor was that there was a war going on in the countryside. Sue had grown up in a village in the Cambodian countryside. And if he'd had any choice in the matter, he'd still be there. Where I grew up in Kampung Spu, at that time, me and my brother was running, laughing, swimming, and catching fish and shrimps at the river, and ducking clams at the hot sands. And we have so much fun. I just miss that so much. And I don't really like the city life at all. Sue's parents were well-educated. They spoke multiple languages and wanted even more for their four kids. So they moved the family to Phnom Penh, the capital of Cambodia. There, Sue had private tutors, learning French, Chinese, and Cambodian. He even went to three different schools. So one afternoon after school, on the way back home, I passed by a store and I saw hatching baby ducklings. It was amazing to see all those living beings coming out, so sweet. And I stood by the window and looked at, at the store, and no one was there, but only the baby was, a duck was like, you know, running in the tray. And then I heard something, beep, 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 something like that. And then I thought, wait a minute, I thought the ducklings are in the tray in the room inside their, their store. How could I hear something outside? In the alley beside the shop, Sue saw a large trash can, and it was overflowing with hundreds of crushed, gooey eggshells. I hate the smell because it's so dirty, but I heard that sound come from that can. So I was curious that something must be going on in this trash can. And so I stepped forward to remove the cover, and I looked carefully. Then I saw something was moving, I decided to put my hand inside the trash can, and I never do this before because I, I don't like dirty things. And it was yellow color. So half buried in that trash was a little peeping duckling, and it was still alive. At first, I didn't see the, the duck's uh, face carefully. I only see the body was still moving. And I thought, oh my God, that was a baby duck. It's just like about the size of my uh, thumbs. And all my thought is about helping this little creature to make sure that he's safe and alive. I don't want him to die. But when I look carefully, oh my God, his beak is deformed. It's, it's not normal. And there was bubble coming out from his nose. I, I was worried that he was choking. Then I, I 
immediately peel out all the all the shells and all the slimy saliva or something. I just wash it away with my hand to make sure that he could breathe. He was trembling and shaking, and I was uh, putting him against my chest with my two hands wrapping around him, and I ran straight home. So the moment my mom saw it, she like, oh my God, he's so ugly. And I told my mom, he's just a little duck. Please don't say that he's ugly. I just told my mom like that. And so my mom said, okay, okay, so what what you want me to do for, for this little baby duck? I was so worried that she's going to reject uh, me to take care of this little duckling. I said, mom, I promise you, please, I, I, I promise you I won't bother you. I will take care of him myself and I, I, all I need is just a, a little box and, and give him some food to, to make him stay healthy. I decided to name him Curly Big because his, his big on the top is curly like this open. So it's hard for him to eat, you know, so I have to nurse him. I have to feed him. So I got uh, like a syringe and I pumped some rice rice juice and I inject it into his mouth three times a day as a meal for him. Each day that Sue fed him, Curly Beak got bigger and got stronger. And soon, he was running around on his own. Whenever I look at him, he know that this is the time that he can get food. So he always like speeding up toward me and sometimes I let him jump to my lap and sit down so I can pat him. So I, I love Curly Big very much, and I feel like we both have the same fate. Because the day I was born, there was a lot of chaos. Like Curly Beak, Sue almost wasn't. The day he was born, nothing was according to plan. The taxi somehow showed up and got a flat tire and didn't have a spare in sight. And there was no local doctor that could make it to their small house in time. So his grandmother was just rushing around the street trying to find anyone to help. And finally, she found a midwife, and she brought her to my mom and helped her delivery. And she pulled me out from my mother's womb. And because I was still encaged in the amniotic sac, my grandmother declared I was born with a cloak of good fortune. And growing up, he actually learned to believe that. I have a feeling like wherever I go, I'm not starving at all. I'm not afraid of getting harmed because I feel like I was born protected. So he went all over, wandering the streets of Phnom Penh, sometimes by himself and other times with a friend. Chapley is a, a special friend of mine. He's a very artistic. He draws cartoons, very special. He, he draws beautiful pictures. So he said, Sue, let's go to my house. I have lots of pictures I want to show you. And that was after school. It was around like, like 3.30. And we were walking back to his home near a theater called Kim Hong. That, that theater is very well-known in our city. And so on the way back, the street was very crowded and, and bicycling. It was like people get off from school, parents pick up kids, you know, it's very crowded. And I was very happy talking and laughing. I was very excited. 
as soon as we passed by the Kim Hong's theater, suddenly it was like boom, boom like that, and 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 Charlie and I was like, oh my God, what's going on here? And 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 we heard a doll say, lay down, uh, lay down flat on the ground. And I realized, that, oh my God, that was bomb. And then we saw people rush out from the theater and people screaming. There was blood all over the body and, and the whole neighborhood was in a chaos. I was trembling. I said, we have to go home. And so I, I just jumped and ran home. The war has been raging for the past many years. But then this time, as I'm running home, I realized that the war is now here in the city. He ran through the smoke and the debris, stumbling over abandoned bicycles and bodies as he made his way home. My, my, my mom was standing at the door waiting for me to come home and she gave me a hug right away there. He was home safe, but the bombs kept coming. They all hid in their house and Sue stopped going out to school. Then there was this one morning in spring where something felt different. So one day, no more bomb explosion. We saw soldiers wearing black pants and shirts and wearing red towel krama and holding AK-47. And they were our hero when we were so happy. We were running out on the street. We clapped our hands. And we screamed, shouting, cheering. Jayo, Jayo, Jayo is like bravo, bravo, Serapip, Serapip, like peace, peace. Some people calling in French, la la and welcome them as they march into our city. And then I look around, like, wow, this is so beautiful. The country has no more war. I was like, I was almost in tears. Like, people are so yearning for, for peace for so many years. Now it's really come. Our dream is coming true now. I can go back to school. I can get my normal life again. I can live a normal life again without any worry about the war. The Khmer Rouge soldiers had secured the capital and their trucks and armaments rolled in. We saw soldiers were all over in our neighborhoods and we were still happy and one of the soldiers put a megaphone at his mouth. People of Phnom Penh, our capital city has been liberated by our courageous soldiers. You must all leave home right now. The American people is going to drop bombs. You don't need to take your belongings. You will come back home in three days. Long live Kampuchea. Long live Kampuchea. Long live Kampuchea. Suddenly, everybody became chaotic on the street, and I didn't know what happened. So I just, I began to run home. Don't go anywhere, Snappers. When we return, find out what happens to Sue, his family, and the capital of Phnom Penh. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the Cloak of Good Fortune episode. And last we left, Sue had just heard the order to evacuate the city from the Khmer Rouge. Suddenly, everybody became chaotic on the street. 
and I didn't know what happened. So I just I began to run home. When Sue got back to his house, his family was already scrambling. I didn't know what to take, but then uh, mom said, "Hey Sue, get your uh, white striped shirt and one for your brother too. Those shirts can protect you from mosquito bite and the sunburn." And so um, I ran there too into my closet and grabbed two uh, striped shirts, one for my brother Chen and one for me. He packed ten sardine cans and his favorite pair of sandals. He also tried to grab his two favorite chickens, but once he actually held them in his hands, he knew he wouldn't be able to carry them. And so I went down to my kitchen. I grabbed a lot of rice and I took it upstairs and I threw a lot of rice in the cage for them to eat. Usually, I don't feed them like that. I want to make sure that three days is enough for them to eat. So I say goodbye to them, and they seems to understand something is going wrong. He left his house, and he and his family joined the throng of people walking towards the Monibon Bridge. It would carry them out of the city and back into the countryside. And so we march along the road with thousands and thousands of people. The street, the street, there was no space for you to sit down. Everyone was just like, 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 move forward um, toward the countryside. And Mama and Papa keep telling me that you have to look around for someone. Look around for 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 our relative, for your grandma, for your uncle. If you find them, you know everybody screaming and shouting on the street, looking for their loved one. And I saw kids like uh, get lost on the street, like five or six years old, crying, screaming. The whole scene was just unbelievable. The Khmer Rouge soldiers were surrounding them, funneling them over the bridge. As we. Walked by them, I was holding my grandfather's hand, and their AK-47 pointing at us, holding their megaphone, shouting at us. Keep going, no stop. Keep going, no stop. As the night began to get darker, we were all stopped on the road. And we sat on the black asphalt. Everybody was jammed on the street. There was no place for us to stretch our body. We have to sit and cuddle each other. And my mom and my father told us that don't worry. We just hang in there. We can make it. We will return home in three days. I was startled awake by a loud noise. It's time to move forward. Keep going forward. American is going to drop bombs. So we have no choice. We keep moving forward. They stayed on the road, marching, stopping only to eat their ration of rice gruel, only a little bit of rice and full of water to lay down and try and sleep. I couldn't. Walk anymore. I was trembling. And all along the way, they would run into the Khmer Rouge, who would force them to gather for re-education. The first meeting we had with the Khmer Rouge soldiers was at the temple. There was a bonfire. We were there with a couple Khmer soldiers standing there and telling us that we have to thank to Anka. We must thank to Anka. 
We have won the war, but we must work harder. There's a lot to be done because cutting a weed is not enough. It must be pulled up by the roots. We have to rebuild our country. The Khmer Rouge had a plan to erase all the trappings of the society, the culture, the music, and especially any outside influence. They were going to make the country start again at year zero. Remember, the land is our school, the soil is our paper, the plow is our pen. We will write our history in our blood and sweat. Revolutionary Army, long live Cambodia! Long live Cambodia! Even though they were always hungry and utterly exhausted, they shouted along out of fear. Because if their revolutionary spirit wasn't strong enough... A Khmer Rouge soldier came to look for someone in your family and they, they told you that you have to go with me. That means that that person will be killed or never return. One day, it was my lucky day. I was feeling very tired and exhausted as I walked to the river to fetch the water. And I saw a little piglet run by me. And I was so happy. I know that, oh my God, I'm going to have a big meal because I was so starving. And so I chased this little piglet and it was running. He was about like, I would say 10 pounds, you know, speeding past by. I I grabbed his leg and like that. And then his, his, his other leg was kicking me and I fell down on the ground and then I stood up and I chased him again until we reached to the river. So I, I, I kind of like blocking him, so lure him toward the water. Then the piglet decided like, okay, he's going to jump into the water and swim. And then I realized that uh, he cannot swim anymore. He gets stuck in the water and the torrent was like, keep hitting him. So making him move very slow. And I grabbed him. I grabbed him, we were, we were struggling in the water for a little bit. So when I pull him up to the shore, he was like, screaming. And suddenly I was like, I was in shock that what I'm holding was a a living being in my arm. He was looking at me and his tear came out from his eyes. And I heard his heartbeat like boom, boom, boom against my chest. And I felt like that was not me. What's wrong with me? And I suddenly forgot all the food, all the tasty food that I'm about to eat him. And I decided to let him go. I said, I'm so sorry. And the little piglet just ran straight, didn't look back. And I was very afraid of myself at that time. How could I do this? That was not me. They kept getting shuffled around with no fixed end in sight until they were finally told the place they would call home. It was called Jatil Village. And to their surprise, it sounded a lot like what the Khmer Rouge had always promised. And his whole family was overjoyed. It was going to be like going back to that same village that Sue grew up in. The moment I heard that we were allowed to move into Jatil Village, I looked at my grandfather and I told him that we no longer worry about food, Grandpa. I can grow papaya sugar cans, beans, and guava. 
we all smile. We know that we are no longer starving. When we first moved in to Chetil Village, I got so excited. I said, "Grandpa, we're going to live in there. That those houses there, and we can grow something." But my heart suddenly dropped when I saw the huts that we were about to live in were just like holes, and the roof was detached, and We were surrounded by hundred and hundred of termites hills. It was nothing the same like Kampung Spu where I grew up. Daily life at Chetil was like this. We woke up at 5 a.m. before the daybreak. The Khmeru's bell would bang, 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 bang. Bang dong dong dong, and there was a broadcasting radio. You have to work if you want to live. Those who refuse to work and make sacrifices will be crushed by the will of the revolution. Long live Anka! Long live revolution! And then they would play revolutionary songs. Yung kyom chia krom ni ri dak sbiang dak krap man tiang tus mor phum mok chak pot amrik ro lie an rai then the whole time we were working and the kmeru song keep playing that song roughly translated goes like this we are the group of young girls who help transport food supplies and ammunition to the front lines As American imperialism melts away and is completely destroyed, Sue and his older brother Chen would work all day from sunup to sundown with two breaks for rice gruel, and every night they went to their forced re-education meeting. It's where they'd be coerced into snitching on their family and their neighbors, and sometimes made to watch torture. The scariest part of the meeting, one time. Uncle Chuan stole the rice from the Kmeru's warehouse, and he got caught. They tied a rope on his neck and pulled him to the ground, and Uncle Chuan was begging for mercy. He kept screaming and saying that he would never do that again. He promised. And the Khmerus, he shouted at us, and he said, "You all look at this. This is the consequence of the punishment." And Uncle Chuan's body was covered with a lot of blood and bruises. And I would say that up to these days, his screaming and crying still live with me. Uncle Chuan had stolen the rice because they weren't actually allowed to eat the food they grew. That was being shipped off to soldiers on the front lines. Well, that's what they were told. Sue's family was desperate, and then one day he heard about a cassava field the Khmer Rouge had just harvested. He went in search of it for scraps and leftovers. There, he found an old man sitting near the field, smoking a cigarette. And I asked him politely, "Can I?" 
get into the field to collect some cassava scraps. He nodded his head, and he threw the cigarette away, and he walked away. And I thought he was a nice guy. I entered the field. My God! I found so many leftover cassava. That is a treasure to me because we were starving. How could this be? Lots of cassava still there, big or small, is still there. So I was wearing my white striped shirt and I pulling them out to make them as a bag so I can put all the cassava against my belly and I hold it. I I got a lot, plenty of them. Suddenly, someone behind me said, "Steve, don't run! I'm going to shoot you. Stay still, stay still." I turned around and looked. There was a Khmer Rouge with a gun in his hand. So my whole body was trembling, and I was like, I didn't know what to do. These are so treasured to me. These potatoes, I'm starving. I want to take it home. Then I didn't listen to him. I just start running. Then I trapped and I fell down. I couldn't stand up because my body was trembling like this, and my cassava was spread all over on the ground. And I tried very hard to stand up. I told myself I don't want to die. Then I stood up and I start running and running, and I heard bang, bang, bang from behind. I hide myself behind a big tree. Then I heard the footstep with the step on the crunchy leaf, a dry leaf, and I heard that stepping. I heard bang, 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 bang. The soldier was trying to scare him out of hiding, but Sue waited him out. Until all he could hear was the chirping of the birds and the silence. I thought it was okay now. I so I begin to come out, and then as I'm running toward the village, I saw the guy was standing there in the middle of the road with a rifle, and pointing at me. He began running, zigzagging across the field, desperately trying to make it to his house without being hit. The moment I stepped into the cottage, I didn't want him to re- recognize my shirt. So I I took up my striped shirt and I changed the green shirt on, and I start looking through the bamboo hole of the cottage, and I saw the guy keep coming with the gun ready in his hand. So I decided to jump off the jump out of the cottage through the front door. I was so scared. I didn't want to look back, and I ran away from the cottage, so that he he may not know that I was the one that he was after. So a few hours later, I came back home. I I I just like oh my god, it's a big relief. This guy couldn't get me. I'm so happy. So I step into the cottage, and I ask pop a uh, grandpa, where is everybody? Oh, they were pulled to a meeting urgently. He said, "Don't go. If you can stay home, don't you don't have to go." I said, "No, Grandpa. I want to see what happened to the meeting." So then, in the darkness, I walked into the meeting at the edge of the village, and there was about two hundred people surrounded the bonfire. It was a big flame in the middle of the meeting, and there was three Khmeru soldier. One of them was holding a gun and stood next to Brother Chan. My mother was running toward the fire, and she asked for mercy. 
that my son is still young. Please forgive him. Please forgive him. And it took me for a while to re- realize that Brother Chen was wearing a striped shirt like mine. When we return, find out what happens to Brother Chen. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the Cloak of Good Fortune episode. My name is Glenn Washington, and sensitive listeners should know, the following segment does include depictions of war, including the death of animals and people. When last we left, we had just learned that Sue had gotten away from the Khmer Rouge, but his brother had been mistakenly caught and was now about to be tried. Snap Judgment. And it was a big flame in the middle of the meeting. And there was three Khmeru soldiers. One of them was holding a gun and stood next to Brother Chan. My mother was running toward the fire. And she asked for mercy that my son is still young. Please forgive him. Please forgive him. I was um, I was relieved at first. I thought that I was out of this uh, danger, but then when I saw my brother was arrested, I wanted to turn myself in, and I want to admit that was me, that my brother was innocent, and he got caught for no reason. But I don't want to make the situation worse. I don't want them to look stupid. That. A young kids outsmart them because they may kill the whole family. My mom and my dad kneel down and begging the Khmer Rouge that please let my son go. He doesn't know anything. He's still young. But I promise you that he wouldn't steal again. I know something bad is going to happen to Brother Chen, and I could no longer watch it. So I ran back home, and I hid myself in the backyard. So the moment my father stepped into the house, my father yelled at me, shouting at me, that you must be the one who stole the krasava. But as soon as I tried to explain to my father, he said, "Shut up! Don't say anything." And then later. My father covered his face, and he said, "Oh God, I don't know what to do." He was covering his face and cry. Brother Chan was spared, but now their family knew they had drawn the attention of the Khmer Rouge, and spies began to follow them. I was in tears. Yes, I was scared at that time, 
but I was happy that he didn't die. So one day after uh, the meeting, Khmer Rouge announced that all the villagers has to move to a new location to open a new land, open a new jungle, except our family were told to stay behind. That morning, we say goodbye to all the villagers. They stood in line and marching slowly. The Khmerus accompanied them with their rifle in their hand. And, and then we were warned by the Khmerus that you cannot go anywhere. You stay here, wait until two weeks later when I come back. I will tell you where you have to go. So my father already know something is not right. Something is badly will happen to us. That same night, I hear the sound of bicycle come in. I saw a soldier with a rifle under the moonlight. I thought, that's it. They come to kill us. The next thing I heard was a man's voice calling my father's. He called, Hong, Hong, Jo Mao, Jo Mao, come down, come down. Then I realized that that was Uncle Barnes. That was the voice of Uncle Barnes. He's coming. Uncle Barnes was my father's childhood friend. Now he's a Khmer Rouge. And they whispered to each other. And right after, my father said, okay, it's time to pack and we have to leave right away. There's no time to, to think about anything because otherwise the Khmer Rouge will execute our family. That is why they'd been left behind. And now, they'd have to make a break for it. He quickly found a stick and he threw the map on the ground. He told my father that we have to reach the Diamond Village on time. There was a group of Vietnamese villagers on their way to Vietnam. That was our last chance to survive. He told him to hurry, but to be careful once they got to the border. It was there that the Khmer Rouge had planted a field of landmines. And then Uncle Ban said goodbye. My father led us across the wood. And during the day, we hid ourselves in, in under the big tree, sometimes under the foliage. And then at nighttime, we mostly rely on the moonlight. Whenever we see some flashlight or something like flashing, we have to really uh, lie flat on the ground until that light is gone. And then my father would tell us, okay, now we're ready to move on. It was very hard, but we try. We're trying to find the trail to keep going. There's no time to think about anything. We have no other choice. Eventually, they reached a group of war-torn cottages. And my father told me and Brother Chan and Grandpa to sleep separately. So just in case, if they capture one group, the other would get away. After Grandpa, Brother Chan, and I settled, I walked to the back of the building. And just as I was about to relieve myself, I heard a wiggling sound in the trees. 
I thought the Khmer Rouge is hiding somewhere around here. Then under the moonlight, I saw a giant rooster landing on the top of the trees. A beautiful rooster. This is the kind of rooster that I, I wanted to show it to my friends. That was the rooster that I really love and would keep it as a pet for myself. But I was so hungry. And I slowly inch forward. I snatch it and I pull it down of the tree. And the rooster was struggling to get free from me and with his claws scratching my body. And I was like holding it very tight. And then the rooster stopped moving and his arm went limp. So I dropped it to the ground. After I pick it up, I hold it carefully and run toward my father. Papa, Papa! And my father was smiling. I have never seen his smile so happy. My father dig the ground and make a hole and he cook the chicken under the ground for us. I keep chewing it for a long time. I didn't want to swallow it. And I was so happy to see everyone having a good meal. I felt like I was a hero. But right after the dinner, I gradually feel pain, you know, scratch in my body that was very painful. And then I begin to think about how could I kill this living being who was trying to hide himself for his safety in the tree and I took his life. That was not who I am. Just because of the food, that's how I have to do something, to kill something in order to survive. I have learned during the Khmer Rouge is that no matter how hard we try to, to be a good person, the value of our life can be turned upside down in no time. We arrive at the Rocky Diamond Village around noon. No one was there. The whole village was empty. And I see my mother's face look so worried. And she asked Papa, what happened if we miss this Vietnamese group? My father kept quiet for a second. And he said, just wait and see. They will be here. As we were about to go to sleep, then we heard from the distance the cowbells. Clock long, clock long, clock long from the distance. My father was so happy. He jumped up. He said, They are here. They are here. The Vietnamese farmers had special permission to cross over the border back into Vietnam. When Sue's father asked if they could join them, the farmers agreed. We stayed on the road for a few days. We walked through the heat of the sun and the rainstorms. And finally, we reached the point where we can see the Vietnamese flag. 
on the other side of the border. My father was jumping and shouting that we are here, we make it, we make it, and I was so happy. <laughs> yeah, I was holding my grandfather's hand, and we were all cheerful. The border was only two miles away. We were about to reach to the Vietnamese border. Suddenly, there was two robbers dressed in black, holding rifle, pointing at us, and said, "Give me your gold! I'm going to shoot you! Give me your gold!" And people behind us didn't know what happened. They thought that the Khmer Rouge is come and arrest us and going to kill us. And they just like run toward different direction, trying to escape. And suddenly, a bomb exploded. Boom! And some people run toward right, and other people run left. At that chaotic moment, I hear my father said, "Follow me! Follow me!" And my father and my mom are holding my younger brother and sister. And I grab my grandfather, and my father said, "Don't stop! Keep coming! Keep running! Keep running!" The bomb constantly went off. And the explosion was hot. The air was nasty, and the soil was dropping like rain falling upon us. We keep running and running. The bomb explosion died down. We saw the the Vietnamese flag hanging in the border. We were so fearful that they are going to get us. But finally, we just put our feet into the land of Vietnam. We were all relieved, and I can see my mom's uh, some smile on her face. But at the same time, she turned around <laughs> and smile, and at the same time she burst in tear and looking back to land of Cambodia, our country, our beloved country, and she waved her hand and say goodbye to Cambodia. I never forget that. A very, very big thank you to Sue Doe. For sharing his story with the SNAP, he and his family they settled in Vietnam, where they tried to find a sense of normalcy, while also grieving for the dozens of family members that perished under the Khmer Rouge. There is so much of this story we were not able to share with you about Sue and his family's incredible journey. But if you want to know more, please check out his book, A Cloak of Good Fortune. You can find the link at our website, snapjudgment.org. The original score for this story was by Renzo Gorio. It was produced by Nika Singh. It happened again. We got here together. 
you missed even a moment of today's show, know that there is so much more incredible storytelling, incredible worlds waiting for you to explore. Subscribe to the Snap Judgment Podcast wherever you get your podcast, because it might just change your life. If you want to hear the secret stories, follow me on the Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. And if you can let the world know you snap, the best way to do it is with the Snap Judgment t-shirt of your dreams. It's available for anyone who loves stories at snapjudgment.org. Snap is brought to you by the team that always acts respectfully when entering someone's home. Except for the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Verstich. He insists upon singing random songs at the top of his lungs. There's Pat Messini Miller, Anna Sussman, Renzo Gorio, John Fasile, Shayna Sheely, Marissa Dodge, Nika Singh, Teo Ducat, Leon Morimoto, Flo Wiley, Nancy Lopez, and Regina Bediago. And this is not the news. No way is this the news. In fact, you could see that one guy from high school, and he could see you. And you look at each other real hard and then keep on walking by without saying a word. And you would still, still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is PRX.